I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? <laughs> we are, uh, like Tim said, live at the Credo House, so there's uh, an audience here. We'll ask for some audience participation possibly in just a few moments. But we've got coffees being made. You might hear that in the background. We've got some people even playing pool. This is all intentional. Table. Nobody stop what they're doing here at the Credo House. Just keep on going. We want to hear the fun in the background, make people jealous, but they should be jealous today, shouldn't they? Yeah, they should. Yeah. We've got a special guest here in the Credo House. Mike Lacona has joined us. Hello, Mike. Hey, good to be here, Michael. If you're not familiar with Mike, I've got my cheat sheet here to read it off right, okay? Mike Lacona received his Ph.D. from the University of Pretoria, right? Yep. I got that right. He served as research professor of New Testament Southern Evangelical Seminary, and that's in North Carolina, is that right? Charlotte, yes. Okay. Uh, was on staff in the North American Mission Board. Apologetics uh, was your specialty right there, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And now works for Risen Jesus, his own ministry, uh, which focuses on the defense of the faith, primarily as we'll be talking about here today, the resurrection of Jesus, hence Risen Jesus. So, nice, you, so nice. you, you work for the Risen Jesus, and you have a ministry <laughs> called Risen Jesus, right? That's right, yeah. Okay. Okay. And, and way to go on getting that website URL. Did you get that early? Yeah, you know, we used to be, uh, when it first started, it was TruthQuest. Uh, we were TruthQuest.org, and there was a TruthQuest.com, but the guy would never give up the uh, URL. He wasn't doing anything with it, but it, it was kind of a, I don't know, KJV-only kind of thing, and mm-hmm. people were confusing that with my ministry, which it's like, that was kind of embarrassing, you know, yeah. so... Um, I, you know I'm KJV only. Uh, real? No. <laughs> He's the guy that has the web address. Yeah, kjvonly.com or something, right? Um, so Risen Jesus all of a sudden became available, and so I grabbed it up and the, the you know, .org, com, net, info, and just and gave up the, the truthquest.org, uh, uh, sold that to the truthquest.net folks who have a good, a decent ministry. So, um, yeah, we, we've had that uh, URL for a while now. We've had our 501c3 in place for the last six years. and Yeah. You can find uh, Mike's ministry, and I'll mention this again. Remind me to, guys. Uh, risenjesus.com, right? Yep. Risenjesus.com. Or .info. Or those. .org. They'll all get you there. All right. Visit the website. Check it out. Uh, among his books, uh, the couple that we have here are Case for the Risen... Uh, Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, you did with Harry, Gary Habermas. Yes. And then The Resurrection of Jesus. Now, some of our audience members might remember, I don't know how long ago, it was probably four or five years ago, but uh, Mike joined us on that infamous day whenever we had, we launched Connection Gate, or when we were trying to, you remember that online facilitated uh, talk device or program that we tried, and Mike was there answering questions about the Tulpiate tomb, right? Was that it? Talpia too? Uh, yeah, pro- I don't I don't remember. <laughs> he doesn't remember, remember it. it. Mike doesn't remember it either, so no one else does. <laughs> I, I would like to not remember well, yeah, it. Michael remembers truth. it. I remember and, being on the show. I don't uh, remember what I was talking about. You were there. We, we right, had you, though. Gary Habermas, Dan Wallace, Ed Komaszewski, uh I don't know who. Paul Copan was there as well. So Just all great people. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, basically, we, we had the ministry had developed this totally ahead of its time way to basically kind of a Skype classroom online environment. Yeah. And at this time is when it crashed and burned, right? It crashed, but he, he didn't know. He was still talking the whole <laughs> yeah, time. And I finally <laughs> just let him go, and I never let him in on that. Nobody heard him. 
Yeah, so thankfully we are recording now and we're, we're piggybacking on software made by Adobe and other people, not by us. Mike, first time at the Credo House. Thanks for joining us, really appreciate it. What do you think of the Credo House? Oh, this is just fantastic. I mean, this is just really, really cool. And you've already had two lattes, right? I have, I have uh, never had a latte prior to today and uh, didn't know what they were like. I love them and you guys, have some quality product here. And I didn't even really drink coffee that often until about two years ago when I went to Maui and made some friends and they sent me some home with some uh, Kona coffee and it's like, whoa, coffee's really neat. <laughs> this is good stuff. And uh, so I've come to appreciate coffee and you guys have some fantastic product here. Good. Well, good, and you're thanks. surprisingly calm for having two lattes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mike, we're going to go through some questions, and for our audience members, for you guys, please jump in at any time. You guys are part of this, okay? Everybody say hello over here. Hello. Okay, good. we got a, we got a, sm a small audience. Say, say hello back there. <laughs> Thank you. What's that? She distinguished herself by being younger. She did, she did. She did. And we're going to talk about uh, your, your some of your work here on the resurrection of Jesus and specifically your book, The Resurrection of Jesus, uh, which is the book title's name. We're going to ask you some questions, discuss this for a little while. What do you think? Sure. Sound Sounds good? good. First of all, appreciate the book. I mean, it's a it's an incredible, what is it, 700 and 14 page. Did you, did you really write all of this? <laughs> yeah, it uh Except um, I contracted someone to do the uh, indices in it, but other than that, yeah, the rest of it is that, That's amazing. How long did it take you? Six years. Six years? Yeah. Now, is this writing every day, thinking about it every day, or, or just well, kind Most of every day, and of course you don't write during that time. A lot of this, most of the work was research that, that took the time, and then you know, you're putting it together. It took you know, a while to write, of course, but most of that time was spent in research. Who is Michael Kona? Tell us that real quick. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, he's a 50-year-old knucklehead is what he is. And, um, you know, he's, uh, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, um, so I uh, became a Christian at the age of 10 and uh, went to uh, a Christian university, Liberty University. I was a music major. Had no intention of, um, of uh, ever doing what I'm doing now. I was not an academic um, uh, didn't know it, but I had ADD and, uh, you know, all my whole life. And uh, so I wasn't a good academic, but it was my doubts about the Christian faith that I later had after grad school and uh, working with uh, the New Testament and uh, specializing in New Testament Greek. Um, I started doubting my faith, and that led me into apologetics, and, and uh, it's just been a, a, a wonderful uh, journey. But that has morphed more from apologetics into New Testament studies. I just love studying the historical Jesus. That, now, that's my area. Now, you may get in this th more tonight. For those of you who are just listening to this tonight, we're having Mike back for his testimony. He's going to give it here at the Credo House. But why do you think you started doubting your faith? Because we've got a big audience that, mm. uh, that w we, we kind of deal with people who are Christians who are doubting their faith. Would it, why, why in your assessment of your own struggle, were you struggling? Well, I, I guess a couple of different things. Uh, one, as I later came to, to understand, it's just the way I'm wired. And <clears throat> I thought it was just because of doubting my faith. But uh, probably about a year or two ago, I started to uh, uh, come to recognize that um, it, my faith wasn't the only thing that I doubted. I, I doubt everything. Um, I can't even walk into a department store and purchase a bottle of cologne 
without doubting whether I got the right thing or whether I should have gotten a different one. And that before you even get out of the store. Um, I really, I'm, did, I'm serious. Did you doubt about Luther Latte? Um, yeah. Did you just say I should have gone I'll, Calvin? I'll tell you what. Um, no, I, after uh, <laughs> I had that Luther Latte, that, that's good stuff. Right. Um, but no, I've, I, I question everything. And mm. I don't like it. It's just one of my idiosyncrasies. But um, that's just the way some of us are uh, wired, and we, we can't help that. That's just the way we're wired. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, real briefly, about your family. Tell us about your family. Well, um, I've been married uh, this coming uh, April. will be 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, 14 to my first wife. And that, No, I'm just teasing. But uh, <laughs> 25 years, wonderful woman uh, that I met at Liberty. And I have two kids, Allie, who is uh, 21, married to a great guy in Charlotte named Nick Peters. Uh, hey, you, I know, know Nick. Who he I is. know Nick. Hey, Nick, if you're listening. And the other is um, uh, Zach. He's 17 and a uh, good kid. So, uh, yeah, so I got kids from A to Z. Um, so that's we live in the Atlanta area and Alpharetta. It's a great place to live. And uh, the airport, I'm on the road a lot speaking of. The last several years, about 40% of, of, mm-hmm. of the time. So I'll probably be cut back now. But it, um, it's just a great place to fly out of because you can get almost anywhere in the world with a direct flight. Um, and it's very economical to live there. So mm-hmm. Kind of get here easy. with a direct flight. <clears throat> no, no. That's because <laughs> I came Oklahoma. American Airline, you know. <laughs> <laughs> American Airline was fine. But, um, it, yeah, I had to get up pretty early this morning. Hey, you guys feel free to jump in at any time. You know, I got a lot to say, and I always do. You, you know that, all right? Right, JJ. You, bet. you you good? Yeah, I'm just you thinking good? about what it must have been like to be at Liberty University. That's a, that's a, that seems to leave an imprint on people. There. Liberty was a great place. Um, you know, I was there from 1979 uh, to 85, and uh, the school is much better today than it was then. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was great then. Um, really, a, a great environment. Uh, it was kind of you know I don't know you know we had a dress code. We had the guys had to wear. Uh, ties to classes. I hated that, you know, and, and couldn't wear jeans except yeah. on weekends and stuff like this. And girls had to wear dresses or skirts and you know, just kind of crazy stuff. But um, but today, you know, you can wear shorts, T-shirts and flip-flops to class. And I mean, it's just a, the environment there. I had been going back every semester and, and, and teaching on campus. And it's just a it really is a, a nice campus. It's a it's a really fine school. That's great. So they've been bringing you back to lecture and yeah, and, and you know, pretty much in, until recently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it's a great school. Yeah. Well, when we look at your your two books, too, uh, on the, the resurrection of Jesus and the one with Gary Habermas, how would you describe the the difference between the two? And, and how would you recommend your first book and then this one to people? Well, the first book is more of a, a popular level book. It's for uh, folks that maybe they don't have any uh, experience reading about the resurrection, or even if they did, it it it, it presents a, a, the approach that Gary Habermas has taken for years, the minimal facts approach. Take only those facts that are so strongly evidenced that even skeptical scholars are inclined to grant them. The overwhelming majority of them are. And um, you take those and, and, and you can show that build a case for the resurrection and naturalistic theories fail. 
And it also is popular level in terms of it not only gives you the case for the resurrection, but gives you tips on how to share that with a non-believer. So the book is for the Christian. And it also has a, a game in the back, a video game hmm. um, that uh, it's a simulated television game show with a three-dimensional animated game show host who's pretty funny. Hmm. And he actually helps you master the information in the book. So, I mean, it's a fun, high-quality game uh, that works on PCs. Um, so, uh, in fact, you finish the game, you pass it, you can even print out, you have a printout of a certificate of course completion and make it in the Resurrection Challenge Hall of Fame. It, it's, it's pretty neat. <laughs> so, um, it's got to be the only book like that that has a game show video oh, yeah. game on the back. Yeah, hard, it was, you know, it raised the bar to a, a new level. The thing was that we were kind of ahead of our time because, uh, you know, we found a lot of people never played the game. Yeah. And yet that was just... It's really cool. I mean, mm. it, it's a it's a great game. Mm. Uh, the way the the new one, the resurrection of Jesus, a new historiographical approach. Um, I, I, you know, it's much larger. It's much more detailed. It's going to cover a whole lot more uh, topics. It's not really a popular level book, although you know, someone who's interested in the stuff, you wouldn't have to have a, a doctorate or a master's degree in order to understand it. You know, you could be an entry level college student and work your way through it. Um, it, you know, a lot of the real, real technical stuff is going to be in the more than 2,000 footnotes. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's got a lot of things. I've always translated the Greek when I use it, which is quite often, but I translate it and, uh, for the, the readers so they can understand it. But I approach this as a professional historian would and, uh, and use historical method. So it's, it's different than the minimal facts approach. Um, so it's what, what is history? How do we come to know it? What kind of method would we use? Um, let's just look about, if, if we don't make any presuppositions about the divine quality of, of the New Testament literature, um, you know, what, what can we prove with reasonable and adequate historical certainty? That's what the book is all about. When, when you just look through the 700 Hey, pages, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah. hold on. Go ahead. Say that word. Historiographical. <laughs> Say it fast. <laughs> Historiographical. Ah, you're good, all right. Go I've ahead. done yeah. it a lot. <laughs> when you look through the 700 pages, just at a high level, what were some things that just surprised you when you were writing things? You just, oh my gosh, I, I just, I can't believe this is, is the way it is. Well, uh, one would have been very strong evidence uh, to show that Paul believed in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, came up with a new argument for that that I think is virtually airtight to show that Paul believed in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it just you know, surprised me no one's really come up with that before it seems so, so simple. And, uh, and the reason why that's important is because there are people right now that would deny, that, that would affirm the resurrection, but deny the physical resurrection. Are you right? Yes, is that right? Yeah, no. you're correct. And so, yeah, it, it really serves in that manner. Um, in terms of the empty tomb and the appearance to James, I didn't. I I don't think these are quite as strongly evidenced as I initially like when I wrote the uh, Gary and I wrote the case for the resurrection of Jesus. Um, you know, I, I saw these as more strongly evidenced than I, I do now. So that's not that I don't think that the appearance to James doesn't have good evidence for it. I think it's got very good evidence. Or the empty tomb. I think there's very, very good evidence for the empty tomb, but it's not as strong as I initially thought. Okay, um, 
but when, when you come to things like um, also uh, the historical evidence that Jesus predicted his imminent violent death and subsequent resurrection, I was surprised at how strong the evidence is for that. Um, I didn't think that when I came in the end, I, I thought the resurrection I did think the resurrection hypothesis was going to be superior to the other competing naturalistic hypothesis hypotheses, but I didn't think it was going to be as far out distancing its competitors as it actually does. The resurrection hypothesis, historically speaking, is not only the best explanation, it is the best explanation by far of the strong historical evidence that we have. Um, and that surprised me, to be honest, to, to see how much better it was than naturalistic hypotheses. So you were thinking maybe that there'd be this kind of like gap of faith that they have to be like, okay, you know, it's still going to take a lot of faith to believe the resurrection or something. But you're saying you were really surprised that it left the others in the dust. Yeah, that this is the most rational, the the most historical thing that you can believe in. Yeah. Um, no, I, I again, I did think that even at the beginning, because I had done enough study about the resurrection, I, you know, I, I still thought it was going to be better than any naturalistic hypothesis. But it is far better. Like I said, it just leaves the others in the dust. When you apply the, uh, when you subject the data to strictly controlled historical method, the resurrection hypothesis is, it comes out smelling really good. Mm. I know when you when you read Habermas, he makes it really clear that that the uh, empty tomb is is sort of this fact you can accept, and now we have to look for sort of the best evidence that's going to fit that fact. Um, is that is that increasingly recognized among scholars? I know it isn't on a popular level. If you were to tell even a, you know the average evangelical Christian that the empty tomb is a fact that you can accept before dialoguing with an atheist, they'd probably be surprised by that. But among scholars, is, is that something where they're not, they're not even testing that anymore? They're saying, yes, we know it's a reality. Now we have to account for it. No, I wouldn't say that. Um, the majority of scholars, I mean, Gary Habermas is one of the few scholars, very few. In fact, he might be the only one who's done an actual bean count of all what scholars who have weighed in on the subject have said. Now, that doesn't mean that he's got a full accounting of, of what all scholars think on this. But my, my thoughts on this is, um, you know, because some will say, well, you know, he like Richard Carrier is an atheist friend of mine and and he'll say well he knows a lot of scholars who haven't written on the subject and they reject the empty tomb but you know for me it doesn't matter because if you're not writing on the subject you're not an expert on it you're not if in you're, a conversation exactly yeah. if you are in conversation and you have studied this topic and you're in conversation with other scholars on it and you're you're a serious scholar on this issue you're writing on it so if you're not writing on it, you're not a serious scholar on this issue. It really doesn't matter what you think. It would be kind of like asking me. You know, we were talking about archaeology earlier on, you, you and I. Um, what my, my view on archaeology, uh, because I know so little about it, is it, it, pretty much worthless. Uh, it doesn't matter for me to weigh in on, on a lot of these issues, of, uh, archaeological issues. Uh, I might have a Ph.D., but unless I've specialized in archaeology, I'm just a layperson on it. So the same thing with the resurrection. If you're, if you're an expert, you really studied it, you're going to be weighing in on it. So the only people who count are the people who have written on it, qualified scholars who have written on it. And Gary Habermas has studied this topic thoroughly and, and is constantly updating his database. And he says somewhere between uh, 67 and 75% of all scholars writing on the subject are saying that uh, they believe that the tomb was empty. 
Um, now, uh, I think, you know, at least what I've seen, now Gary hasn't, you know, told me this, but from what I've seen in my study, it appears that the majority of people writing on it are evangelicals. So um, you could say, do the majority of non-believing scholars writing on the empty tomb, do they grant it? Um, my thoughts would probably, and I haven't done a being count, but I would suppose that the answer to that would be no, they don't grant it. Um, but from what I read uh, on their reasons, it seems that it's more of a worldview thing than it is because of any lack of evidence for the empty tomb. I think the evidence for the empty tomb is pretty good. Guys, anything from the audience? You're just, you're, well, I'm just priming you guys, right? You're, you're getting ready to have something. Um, historiography. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, when, whenever I approach this book and whenever I'm talking to people about it and I say you're coming here to the Credo House and I want you to come, well, why? What's, what's so special about this book? I, I think that I've caught, and you need to correct me if I'm wrong, but I've caught what is the difference in this book, say, in the you know 700-page volume of N.T. Wright, um, which, which is another massive tome on the oh, resurrection, yeah. very, very significant one. contribution. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my thoughts are this, and this is why I was so excited about it because it teaches you how to do history first before you enter into applying that to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you, you have to ask the question, how do you verify events of the past that t- uh, take place and, and what is the method that we follow and is it a good method? And I, I feel like that's the unique thing of your book is that you cover that and you teach us how to do history, and then you say, now let's go to the resurrection of Jesus. Would you say that's the uniqueness? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's something that it is unique in that sense. Now, was that, did that come out of a sense of wanting to, knowing this would become a book one day, wanting to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be discussing a lot of history. Let me teach people how to do history first. Or was this out of more of a personal place of saying, I need to learn first of how I know anything historically before I look at the resurrection. Yeah, I mean, I had a fantastic doctoral supervisor, Jan van der Watt, who has since moved on to Radboud University in the Netherlands. He was just fantastic. And so he led me down the path and was telling, you know, you've got to discuss what is history and how to do it. Um, So I just devoted a lot of several years to that. And in fact, I remember at one point, uh, he had even, he had approved uh, the chapter one, which was on the philosophy of history and historical method. But then I remember uh, emailing him and said, uh, Professor Jan, I, I found another 125 articles on this topic that I want to read before moving on. Would you oh, mind no. if I took an extra year? And he said, no, go ahead. So uh, <laughs> I, I just really got into the philosophy of history and wow. historical method. I just loved it. So um, yeah, it does go into it a little more than, than other books on the topic, like by N.T. Wright and others. I just uh, really liked it. And what I tried to do, another thing Professor Jan told me to do is, as I was writing a book, you want to take your readers on a tour through a museum, mm-hmm. and you're the tour guide. Mm-hmm. And so you want to take them step by step. So it was kind of like, okay, well, what is history? Let's talk about what history is mm-hmm. and what it, is, what it isn't, and how do you do history, and what are our expectations, and what is the historical method that we can go through in order to a- a- achieve a knowledge of the past? And when we say that this is what happened, what do we actually mean by that? Mm-hmm. And then, so that's like chapter one. And so then you, after that, well, then you take your group and you move on, and then we come to our second station, which would be, ah, but some people are saying that when you're talking about a miracle claim, 
that throws a wrench in this. Mm -hmm. And so that can stop the whole process. Someone like a Bart Ehrman and others would say this. So let's stop here and, and deal with these. And so once we've dealt with them, all right, let's move on to our next stop. What are our pool of resources? And so we talk about those. So that's kind of like what we're doing. We're taking a person through a museum on a, on a tour. And, and, and all the processes involved until you get to a point you say, this is what happened. Mm. And, and what we mean when we say, this is Jesus' resurrection. You're really defining your terms before you make a statement of truth. Precisely. Can I ask a question? A comment here in your book about the agenda behind the writing of some of these biographers. And you make this comment just as with many contemporary historical Jesus scholars' persuasion and factual integrity were not viewed as being mutually exclusive. Right. Yeah, so, uh, and that's exactly right. Could you repeat the... Yeah, it's um, the uh, writing things, um, reporting the events of the past, and having an agenda for doing it are not mutually exclusive. In other words, uh, uh, someone like Ehrman will say, the, the gospel authors are biased, and so therefore we can't believe what they're saying. And it, uh, in the past, uh, virtually all historians, past and present, have an agenda for, for writing. Um, you know, for example, even today, Jewish historians, why are they writing about the Holocaust? Because they don't want this kind of thing to happen again to Jews. Um, well, are we really to say that Jewish historians shouldn't be writing on the Holocaust? Or what about homosexuals writing on the gay movement and, and gay rights? What about women writing on the women's movement? What about African Americans writing on the Civil War and slavery? It, that would, you know, the, the fact is that African Americans, African American historians may be the very best type of historians to write on slavery in the United States because there's something in it for them. You know, there's, there's pain uh, from the past. Jewish historians are probably the best people to write on the Holocaust because they're going to dig a little bit deeper than, say, a Gentile historian who's a little more removed from it. So, um, and, and the thing is, you know, even if the gospel authors were biased, it doesn't mean they're wrong. If Jesus was who he claimed to be, then the gospel is the very best news that this world could ever hear, and you would want people to hear it. Um, so being biased doesn't mean you're wrong. So it sounds like this sort of empirical lens, this myth of objectivity, that, that you have to find an objective recorder, but then we start to ask, does such a thing even exist? And if you could find one, would that even be a good thing if you found it? Well, yeah, that's a good point. And I can tell you, in reading the literature written by professional philosophers of history, there is no such thing as an objective, completely neutral historian. Everyone has their biases, whether it's race, gender, ethics, nationality, their political, philosophical, religious convictions, the way we were raised, the academic institutions we attended, um, the very group of people whose acceptance and re respect we covet, all of those things influence um, you know, our desired outcomes. And in, unless we're willing to distance ourselves and detach ourselves from our desired outcomes while our investigation proceeds, we are bound to allow those prejudices, our own biases, to get in the way of an authentic uh, or a historical investigation that's done with integrity. So, uh, and again, virtually all historians acknowledge that they're, they're biased in some way. And it was really neat, I was on uh, Justin Brierley's uh, program, uh, I think it was back in August. Uh, my family and I had just returned from a trip to Switzerland and Germany 
and he had us on un the show Unbelievable, you've yeah. heard of that? Yeah. And so uh, Bart Ehrman and I, who we've become friends over the last several years. I, I like the guy. Um, I think his arguments stink, but you know, I like the guy, you know, as a person. Um, and so we were on and we were talking about how both of us could come to uh, defining moments in our lives where we had to make decisions because we were kind of like what Billy Graham and, and Templeton did, mm -hmm. Charles Templeton did. They both had doubts and they made decisions and they went opposite directions. Well, what led Bart to go down his direction? What led Mike to go down his direction? And so we discussed these things and Bart brought up how I'm biased because I'm a Christian. And so um, uh, Justin said, well, Bart, are, you know, you're an agnostic, but are, are you biased? And he said, well, yes, of course I am. So, you know, I thought that was a big admission in there, and he admitted that he's biased. Everybody's biased. So it, we have to acknowledge that, and we do our best to minimize our biases as we move on. Can we do it completely? No. But uh, as one uh, historian said, uh, 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 just because a physician cannot do a surgery within a completely um, uh, sterile environment doesn't mean you do surgery in a sewer. So you do your best to, to maintain objectivity as much as possible, even though you'll never get complete neutrality. Well, folks, we're going to have to pick this up uh, next time on the broadcast, and we're going to try to apply these things like you have done just to the resurrection, asking some direct questions about the resurrection of Jesus uh, and with regard to this. So sorry to cut you short uh, on this, but we'll pick it back up. Actually, we'll pick it back up in just a moment, but don't tell anybody else. Uh, we'll pick it back up next broadcast. We'll see you guys probably in a week, I guess. Uh, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.